0: Today we're going to get started in chapter 17 of 1st Samuel, 1st Samuel chapter 17. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Say that again. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, 1st Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. So the Philistines now are attacking Saul as the king. The Philistines are going to attack Israel. I've got a map on the board. And we have here Jerusalem. Below that, about five miles away, is Bethlehem. Where they are, the battle is going to be about 15 miles to the west. You see the Philistine territory is over here by the Mediterranean Sea. So this battle, the Valley of Elah, is here over about due west from Bethlehem, about 15 miles. Verse 4 of 1 Samuel 17. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Six cubits. Cubit is 18 inches, so we're talking about nine feet. Some nine nine feet. Nine, nine. There are some other versions that uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls said four cubits and a span, which would make it six, nine or so. Uh, either way, this was an imposing, imposing man. And how do we know that he was imposing? Because there's so much time that's going to be taken describing the, his implements, how heavy the things are that he's carrying. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. That's hundred and twenty-five pounds. So he's wearing a coat the size of a you know small person basically on him. Or so the, the weight of a small person. He's got a bronze armor on his legs. So he's basically armed head to toe. he's, he's got armor on a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's almost 15 pounds. In addition, he has a shield bearer, an armor bearer, with him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, then we will be your servants. If I prevail and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So I wrote one of the questions on the board. He says that if he loses, that Israel is going to be, that the Philistines are going to be the servants of Israel. Was he telling the truth? We know the end of the story. Did the Philistines say, okay, we're your servants? They did not. He actually was not telling the truth. Interesting, interesting to note. Israel is playing by a set of rules here, but the rules are set by someone who's not honest. Hmm, I wonder if that ever happens to us. I wonder if that ever happens to us. Continuing, verse 10, and the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. One of the things that we know, we're talking about how imposing this man was. What's something that we know about King Saul? He was tall. How tall was he? Head and shoulders above anyone else in Israel. Who do you think feels like they should be the one to handle this situation? Saul probably feels some pressure here. He's clearly the tallest one, head and shoulders above any of his men. He's shaking. He's greatly afraid. What we notice about this first opening paragraph is the focus that the narrator has on the material world we're going to shift now in the next paragraph but right now all the focus is on the size of the man he has no no opening now David does see an opening but he has a helmet he has mail he has his legs are covered with bronze you can't hurt this man and basically if he touches you he's so big and so powerful if any of his weapons just would touch you probably you'd be injured significantly. All he has to do is get any of one of those weapons near you and hit you with a bit of the spear, his sword, you know, whatever, and you, and you have no opportunity to hurt him. You can swing as hard as you want at one of his legs, and you're just going to hit bronze. This is a human tank. This is a very difficult situation. And you see how our eyes and our fear, even as I'm telling you this story, you can imagine, imagine you're in the battle line. You're one of the soldiers. So here we're in a situation. If you are Saul, are you able to hear the voice of God in this situation? No. Why not? Because his spirit had left the obedience that he needed to have his power. Yes, God's spirit had left Saul. We have other indications throughout the scriptures. If God is angry with someone and he comes to them and tells them if that person repents, humbles themselves, God comes right back. He's just trying to get people's attention. If Saul would have said call the priest. I need some help. Let's uh, let's call on the Lord. What should we do? I want you to think about this. What do you think God's response would have been? If Saul or even any of his men would have said, God, what should we do? Is there any, you know, should one of these men go out? Let's start asking God some questions. How are we to handle this situation? They were here for 40 days. This was happening every day for 40 days. And every day they had, it sounds like nothing but fear. Now, watch the narrator is going to shift. Verse 12, 1 Samuel 17. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite in Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons were Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. We know from the last chapter, chapter 16, as the chapter concluded, David, Saul was having this tormenting spirit and David was, what was he doing to help him with it? He was playing a a lyre. He was playing a, a musical instrument and we talked about some of the character qualities that would have been necessary for someone to learn to play a musical instrument with strings. There were seven or eight strings. They were actually made of the same material that bow strings are made of, sheep gut. Gut, actually we use that in suture, for suture material. It's very, very strong when it dries. Nonetheless, tuning an instrument like that to all the appropriate seven or eight octaves that you would need to to play this, in a concert fashion such that it would calm someone is a significant level of skill. And we pointed out that in David's, with David's character and some of the character qualities that he was going to exhibit to be able to do that, what were some of those qualities that we pointed out? To play a liar at a concert level, what kind of gifts or talents or qualities what character are we going to assign to David? Strong hands. You need seven strings. That's Strong hands because you're also going to make enough. You have to vibrate the strings enough. Typically, the lyre had either a tortoise shell or a box of wood like a guitar. It had something to uh, amplify the sound. Just the strings alone typically won't do it. I believe that he had a special anointing. He wrote, I like, think, 73... We know he wrote 73 of the 150 psalms, 75 are attributed to him in scripture and possibly many more. So basically half of the psalms that we sing are from David. Clearly he had an anointing and Jesus quoted those psalms. They were anointed enough that Jesus would quote them. I heard practice, I heard discipline. There's something about this. Discipline is an interesting word. We don't like it very much in our society. We don't like, certainly after we get out of our education, we get out of school, we don't like discipline. We've done it. We had enough of it. Now we just want to coast. Yeah. But discipline, discipline is something God values very, very highly. In the word discipline, we get the word disciple disciple, that we, through disciplines, we become disciples. We become like our master. So here's David learning to play. Very likely, is he playing secular tunes on his instrument? Probably not. We've got, you know, to write 75 psalms, probably from the beginning, he was worshiping with that instrument. He was developing a connection. Do you develop a connection with God through your singing? Many people are saying yes. If not, I would encourage you to to try that. In this class, we're in a class, and classes are about learning new things, especially learning new disciplines. If song is not something that you have used to connect with God, I, I recommend you try it. I remember years ago, I started learning the guitar, playing chords on the guitar. And then I got a little electric piano. I never really had piano lessons, but I learned some chords enough to be able to write worship songs. And often when I take a Sabbath, I'll take some time off, uh, 24 hours during the week, and many times I will play the songs that I have already written, or I will take a verse of scripture and an experience of my life, just like David, my namesake, and I will put together a little psalm, a little jingle, a little something that I can sing it has God's words in it and has my emotions in it, and that is very healing for me. It doesn't require a lot of talent, and I believe God enjoys giving me new songs. He enjoys giving you new songs. If it's not something that is your experience, and you have a piano or something sitting around, a little electric piano that you can get them Uh, even used, they're not expensive, just to start playing with some tunes, some chords, and especially the lyrics and the words. Take a verse of scripture that means something to you in this season of your life and write a little psalm for yourself, something that you can sing to God, something very personal. That's the word, personal. The psalms that we read of David are extraordinarily personal. This person's against me. That person's against me. Oh God, you've left me. He's, he's pouring out his heart. Now as we look, even at Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's very clear to me, theologically, the psalm is not correct. God had not forsaken him. That's the way he felt. God understands if you write something that's not theologically correct, but you can check with some other people if you'd like to get it theologically correct. We still, we still use it. By the way, when Jesus used that on the cross, many of us feel like he, God had forsaken his son. I, I will say, in my opinion, that's also not true. It was also not true what he was saying, there was no Psalm 22 in those days. He couldn't say, check out Psalm 22, you'll understand why I'm on the cross. If you read Psalm 22, it talks about piercing my hands and my feet. It's, it's very, very clear what was happening. There was no way he could say Psalm 22. They weren't labeled. They weren't listed in numbers. The way a rabbi told you What he wanted you to know was by quoting the first line of whatever he wanted you to understand. Also, considering Jesus had a hard time breathing while he was on the cross, he couldn't quote the whole psalm. He was just telling them, you're going to want to look at Psalm 22. It's going to explain exactly what's happening here. And we have somehow interpreted that, that God couldn't look on his son, that he turned his back on him. We've got songs written about that. I, I disagree with those. I disagree with those theologically. I don't think that's correct. I don't think God will ever turn his back on you. They say, well, God can't look on sin. He couldn't look on sin. Well, look at the book of Job. He's face to face with Satan. You know, this is not God. He can look on your sin. He can look on my sin. Sin doesn't scare him. He doesn't like it. It doesn't scare him. He's not not going to, ah, the sin. We are like that. We are like that. Oh, sinner, sinner, we got a sinner over here. God's looking for relationship. He's always looking for relationship. Bit of a detour there. Into the Psalms, but that's why we're here. We're here to learn perhaps new disciplines. So if if you can add a discipline of music, some singing to your week, uh, I would love to hear some feedback on that. Verse 10, we hear the word defy. Goliath says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Verse 10 of chapter 17. And we're going to, we're going to be, that word defy is going to be used several more times. It's a, it's a theme of this chapter. The defiance, now, Goliath is actually defying the men of Israel. But when David comes on the scene, he says, oh no, he's actually defying the God of Israel. This word defy is part of the fabric of this chapter. So David is going back and forth now in verse 15 of 1 Samuel 17. I wonder if anyone can think of any reasons why David is not on the battlefield right now, playing his lyre, trying to soothe Saul. Anyone think of reasons why it might not be why Saul might not have wanted David just right there next to him. what would it look like if the king of Israel has someone trying to trying to calm his nerves? It'd be a little embarrassing, yeah. Good, good, good thought. It would be a little embarrassing. The, 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 the king is so distraught, he's so he's so nervous that he's got to have a minstrel next to him. Basically, everyone's going to start, what, losing heart. Everyone's going to start panicking. So David now is going back and forth. It's, uh, you know, they're camping in the field. So, no, we're, he's not using David at this time. So David's back with the sheep. Mm. Verse 17, Jesse said to David, his son. Take for your brothers an ephah. That's three-fifths of a bushel of parched grain. So they dried. They had wheat. You know, the, the disciples were going through the wheat fields. What were they doing? Grabbing the wheat, and they were eating these kernels, these wheat berries, we call them. If you set them in the sun, you dry them, or you roast them. We know in the book of Ruth, Boaz served Ruth's roasted grain. So roasted grain was sort of a... It, it's a delicacy, it's a it's it's something that they would enjoy. It's also very nutritious. Ten loaves, carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of the thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now, Saul and they, and all the men of Israel are in the Valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. The Bible has some humor here. Jesse is 15 miles away, here in Bethlehem, talking about how the army is, for the last 40 days, fighting with the Philistines. We're supposed to sort of understand the humor here. Nobody's fighting with anybody. They're they're all actually sort of shivering. They're all shaking. Their knees are knocking together. There's no fighting going on. There's some rumbling. There's some saber rattling. And the fighting is where? It's all in In their head, just like most of the fighting is in our heads. It never actually happens. David rose early in the morning uh, and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went As Jesse commanded him. And he came to their encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. He just kind of sneaks up on the scene. He's got his cheese and his bread with him. He is here to see the battle. He hears a war cry and he's saying, Oh, the battle's on. This is going to be great. He left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage. And ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. He left the cheese, he left the bread, and he went to see his brothers are going to be fighting this battle. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke to the same words as before, and David heard him. He was coming down, now it says he's coming up. Basically, in 40 days, they've moved to the point, they were each army on one hill, but now the Philistines, in 40 days, have moved down, now they're actually coming a bit, a bit up toward Israel. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. There is the word again, defy. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches. And will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Pay him a lot of money. Marry the king's daughter. You are going to be nobility. And no taxes. Taxes were a problem back then, as they are now. Your family is going to be free of taxes. Now, is this important? Is this information important to David? He's actually going to ask three times. I think the indication is this information is very important to David. David said to the men who stood by, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? So David's asking again, what was that bounty? What was that bounty? See, somehow we get this idea that David is sort of a monastic type of man. He's very, very deeply spiritual, which he is. But this is probably a 15, 17-year-old boy And he's been anointed. Samuel didn't exactly say why, but he might be thinking, oh, if I can marry the king's daughter, I see how this is going to work. This is it. I'm going to kind of come into the palace from the back door. Have you ever gotten ahead of God in the way you thought he was working out your situation? So David says now, By the way, this is the first time David speaks. Up until this time, he's been silent. Other things have been going on around him, but now he's speaking. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should, here it is again, defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him the same way. Riches, king's daughter, no taxes. So it shall be done to the man who kills him. So most of us I can just speak for myself when I hear about this word "uncircumcised," we kind of cringe a bit like, "Oh, do we have to go there? Like David is sort of cursing or he's, he's using some kind of some type of profanity. It was a derogatory term. It's been used before in the in the book of judges. If we could look at it another way, essentially what David is saying circumcision was the covenant relationship with Israel. It is not just talking about how physiologically you look different from this Philistine. It's talking about wait a minute, God has a covenant relationship with us. This person is not in a covenant with the God of Israel. Why is he? defying the armies of the living God. It's a little bit different. I want you to shift when you hear this word uncircumcised because it's gonna come up again. And most of us kind of don't like it. We'd rather he used another word or just said the Philistine. Circumcision was God's covenant. Very personal, very central, very important, was meant as a sign of God's relationship with his people. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. You have come down to see the battle. Another bit of humor. What? The battle? Yeah, I was expecting to see a battle. What what battle would that be? The narrator is throwing in a little bit of humor. We have to kind of follow it. You go go take get some news from your brothers who are fighting the Philistines. Oh, David, you've come to watch the battle. Yeah. Now, why is Eliab angry? Why is Eliab angry? This is his anger is kindled. Any ideas? Why is Eliab angry? Why is the older brother angry with David? So one of the things we want to think about is jealousy. Remember, it wasn't long ago, just the last chapter we were in, where all the brothers were together and he was not chosen. He was expecting to be chosen. He was probably all puffed up like he should be chosen. Samuel said, you're the man, and God said, that's not the man. So even, though, even the priest was there, was so excited to anoint him. And it was snatched away from him by the youngest. So Eliab still has the sting of that, um, I say embarrassment, rejection. And we pointed out when we talked about it that in order to understand why David was chosen and he wasn't, you actually needed some insight. You needed to be able to to humbly ask the question, what does he have that I don't have? We can see time has passed and Eliab is not asked that question or gotten it answered in a way that would make him any more humble. Eliab is actually trying to discourage David. He notices David's repeat questioning and he can tell where this logic is going. And he is going to try to put a stop to this nonsense. Why is he so eager to, to put a stop to this? Probably he and every other man in the army is hearing from God, why don't you go and fight the Philistine? Every single one of them. Every single one of them has been training for years to be in a battle like this one. As men, I can remember, whenever I had a basketball, what what was I doing? I was shooting at the buzzer. I was trying to be the hero, trying to be the hero, trying to get the giant to go down, and the public admiration. They've all been doing this. In fact, David has been doing this. So behind Eliab's anger, I believe, there's a lot of fear. If David succeeds, how's Eliab going to feel? It's going to feel bad. So when you see someone with talent, and he knew David had talent. I'm sure he'd heard about how he'd killed a lion and a bear. He was afraid that if David succeeded, essentially how was he going to feel? He's going to feel worse. So. What we do, many of our actions as we react to people, has to do with how we are going to look if they are successful, and he was going to look bad. I want to pause and I want us to think now, I want to take about a minute, And I want you to think about the people that have been discouraging you and what might be their motivation. And if you don't have anyone discouraging you, there may be some people you've been discouraging, and you may want to question your motivation. We're in a section that contrasts and compares someone who has A godly motivation seems like a crazy one, but God is moving through him, is speaking to him, and someone who clearly is not in favor of God expressing himself through this person in this way. I wonder if there is anything you've been critical of, any demonstrations of the power of God, people who've been critical of you. Why do you just to, 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 let's just take a minute of self-reflection. I believe that is one of the things that gives us hearts that are sensitive. So let's just reflect for a minute. One of the things that Eliab tells David is, with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Essentially, I believe that the devil is speaking through him. There's a, there is a devaluation in the tone and in the words. Few sheep, you don't have much responsibility. How could you even imagine doing anything as grand as killing a giant? That the evil one comes and speaks to us these words and says, You, you don't have the qualifications. You don't have enough training. You're not as tall, as big, as strong, as wise as the person that should really do this. There are other people that are qualified than you. He's speaking death to David's dream and to the words that God has given him specifically. He's projecting. He claims knowledge of David's pride. He says, you are prideful. Who is actually prideful. See, he's projecting. It's called projection. You see someone and you see, and somehow you know exactly their motivation. He was 180 degrees off on this. He was the prideful one. And he said, I know the evil in your heart. All of that is coming from the fear that David would be successful and that he, as the eldest brother, who didn't challenge the giant would not be successful or would feel bad that someone else took the prize here. Verse 29 of 1 Samuel 17. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word, a question? David's no longer silent. He's got a bit of an attitude actually. He is for the first time standing up to his older brother. And it says, And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. There it is, three times. Three times he's interested in what the reward's going to be for killing this giant. And three times he gets riches, king's daughter, no taxes. You think he's the youngest given that relationship he had with Jesse, who didn't even call him when Samuel showed up to be part of their sacrifice, you think he would like to do that favor for his father to have no taxes in Israel? You think that would sort of help bond that relationship? I think it would. I think any of us would love to, those of us who didn't get the kind of attention we wanted from our fathers, if we could do something heroic and make him notice us, Yeah, yeah, then then things would be good for me. When the words were heard, they repeated him to Saul, and he sent for him. Basically, he's ignoring what his older brother has said, and he's living his life. He's hearing from God now. He's not listening to the detracting voices. He's heard the voice of God and he's moving on that. And with that, I think I'm, I'm going to stop. Father, we thank you for your word. We have a father who is constantly speaking, constantly loving us, constantly pouring out your love upon us. Lord, that we would feel it this week. And that we would respond to you in word, in song, in prayer, and in appreciation.